All right, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, let me have you or invite you to turn with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 2. We have been in 1 Peter chapter 2 for quite a long time now. The passage that I'm going to read for us is in your bulletins. It's also uh, in those blue Bibles on page 1015 if you'd like to follow along there. If you have not been with us for the last couple of weeks as we've continued to work through this section... We are being instructed by the Apostle Peter here in this section in what I want to think of, and I think this is completely appropriate to the way Peter has written in here, the mission of honorable conduct in the world. Not just honorable conduct by itself, but honorable conduct in the world, and not just do it, but it's a mission. We have a mission to exhibit and live in a way that is honorable in the world. And if you haven't heard the last couple of sermons, I would encourage you to listen to them online because they do serve to provide something of a framework for what we're looking at, what we looked at last week, what we're looking at this morning, and what we'll continue over the next couple of weeks to consider. This is an important section of Scripture. It is wonderfully practical. It is particularly relevant to us, I think, as the people of God living in our time. I suppose that every generation could say that, but it seems to me at least to be particularly relevant to us. But here's the reality. It's also very complex. Okay, It's a very complex se- section of Scripture, and so you have to work your way through it carefully and deliberately so that we can live well what we have bes- before us. Now, I'm going to read from 18 to the end of the chapter today. Uh, That's going to be the same section of Scripture that I will read for us next week, and I'm going to take it in two halves. I'm going to take the first part of this passage this week, and I'll take the second part next week. So hear this portion of the living word of our living God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A gracious thing is the title of the sermon today. The subtitle of the sermon today is You Can't Be Serious. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that today, as we look at this text that is before us, you would help us. We need your help. We need your help in understanding it, and we are certainly going to need your help in living it as well. And so be with us, your people, 
we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. If you heard the sermon last week, if you were here, or if you listened to the sermon last week online, you perhaps will recall that I included in that sermon a parenthetical section to the sermon, and the parenthetical section was what I called the but what about parentheses. And if you'll recall, the reason that we did that is we were looking at the commands that were contained in the section prior to this, and the commands were that we be subject to the governing authorities. And we needed to do the parenthetical section that basically helps us to see both the rest of Scripture and how do we appropriately apply this. After all, uh, we don't live in the Roman Empire, and so we simply have to ask the question, okay, our culture is very different than the government of the Roman Empire. Does that have an implication on how we apply this passage? And indeed, it did. Uh, but in addition to that, the other reason for that but what about is we needed to see that the scripture does in fact call us to obedience to God before obedience to men. And so that if men give us a command that is contrary to what God has said, then we are forced to disobey that command. We saw that in the Joseph story, right? Uh, so the command is given to him from Potiphar's wife to lie with me and he has to refuse because he has to obey God. He can't do the sin against God. That applies more to our section today than to last week. But nevertheless, the principle is there. But the reason I did it as a parenthetical section, as a but what about parentheses in this, is so that we could acknowledge it without allowing it to become the main thing. You see, here's the thing that I think happens oft times. We think about exceptions to things, and in our thinking about exceptions to main things, exceptions become the main thing for us. They can become the rule. They can be, become the thing that we think about the most, time, the, the, most of the time. And so what I wanted to do is acknowledge the parentheses, but lay it aside so that the main thing could be the main thing. After all, the text that we read last week doesn't have a parenthetical section in it, right? It, it doesn't have what I just said and what I did last week as well, nor does the text that is before us today. So, recognizing that those things exist, we had to do the parenthetical section. Today, today, even more so, even more so, I have to do that because this is such a difficult text for us. You know, on the one hand, we get that government still exists, and so we can apply what, was, what were instructions to government, the Roman Empire, and we can apply that to us. But, obviously, the institution of slavery is before us today, and the institution of slavery, at least in our culture, in our world, in our time, does not exist, and so we've got to wrestle with this. We've got to try and make sense of how do we understand this well for ourselves. So I have to do that, and this is going to be an extended... <laughs> If you want to parallel it, it's going to be an extended parenthesis, but I'm going to call it something a little bit different. So what I want to do are, these are some preliminary points that we've got to be aware of and we've got to have in our mind before we can even come to this text today and ask what God wants from us from this particular text. So preliminary point number one, this passage begins with the word servants or slaves. Servants or slaves, you can say either one of these things. How do we apply instructions that are given to servants, to slaves, when in fact none of us are actually servants or slaves? At least none of us are literally servants or slaves. Well, a couple of things to address this preliminary point. One is this. Applying scripture 
from a variety of cultural settings, from a variety of people to whom it is originally addressed. Applying that to ourselves is nothing unusual. We actually do it all the time. Okay, all of Scripture is speaking to the people who were there or who would be soon there and would be considering that word. And every time we open this ancient text, we are essentially doing that activity uh, for uh, January 2nd, a New Year's, a post-New Year's sermon. I preached on uh, chapter 3, verse 6, do not fear anything that is frightening. That, in fact, is addressed to wives in this passage. I applied it to all of us. And one of the passages that I had us read in that section was Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, of course, he says, you know, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. And I talked to some of you individually about how that was a verse that I would give to my kids when we were going to the dentist. Now, originally speaking, that passage was given to Joshua going into the land and needing to defeat enemies. You know, and I would take it out and apply it to the kids and say, kids, memorize this. You know, the Lord is with you in these sections, in these, in these difficult times. You don't need to be afraid. So what I'm trying to say is we do this activity. We have to do it carefully. It's one of the reasons why God has given to the church pastors and teachers to help walk us through how to do this in our lives. But we do it carefully. In fact, I'll give you one more. In a few weeks, we'll get to the section that is addressed to wives, and I will share with you then an example of my own application of that passage addressed to wives that was critical in how we lived family life and in restoring a very broken relationship within my own family. So we do this all the time. Secondly, while this passage certainly instructs people at the time who were literally servants or slaves, there's strong evidence, if, if we consider this text, that Peter has the idea here that this applies far more broadly than just to immediately those who are slaves. Because, in fact, all of us are, in one sense, slaves or servants. We saw this in verse 16, just up above our passage. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter's presupposition, and of course it's not just Peter's, but it's the scriptural presupposition, is that we are slaves, servants in the household of God. Now, we're beloved children as well, but we're slaves or servants in the household of God. And so if you're addressing servants, yes, there may be literal servants there, but you're also addressing all of us. You're addressing all of us. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, we read that he took the form of a servant, he took Paul, right? Philippians. He took the posture of a servant. He wasn't literally a servant in the sense that he was literally a servant in someone's particular household, working for them as a slave in that household. But everything that was characteristic of a servant, he took upon himself. And so it's very appropriate for us as the followers of the servant Jesus to adopt the servant disposition, even the servant title. Third thing with respect to just this opening that says servants or slaves. The servant-slave uh, slash master relationship was perhaps the, or at least one, of the most fundamental economic relationships in the Roman world. And so applying this passage, which I think is uh, what one of the things we'll see naturally in applying it, applying it to the area for us of our commerce, of the work that we do, and the relationship that we have with people at work. I don't think that's much of a stretch at all. 
I think it's actually completely appropriate that we would take this passage and understand it that way. That's preliminary point number one. This is the second preliminary point. The elephant in the room, obviously, is the institution of slavery. We have to say a little bit about it each time we get to a passage like this. Without endorsing the institution of slavery, Peter is, in fact, instructing his readers in how to live in this fallen world. How do you navigate life in this fallen world? And how do you do this in this very fundamental relationship that impacts so much of your life? Your work life. Where do you go? What do you do day by day? As, uh, as many of you know, Roman slavery was not the same as American slavery, but that doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it easy for people who were slaves in the Roman Empire. There were situations in which slaves were treated awfully, they were treated poorly, they were given very menial, low positions, and treated accordingly. There were some other situations wherein the slaves could hold what we would consider to be relatively, well, not just what we would consider to be, what would have been considered at the time, relatively high positions in the household, wherein they would have been household managers or stewards, we might call them, uh, even doctors who were there and teachers who were there as well. And they were often paid, and they could, it was at least possible, to buy oneself out of slavery. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they had no legal rights, they had no independent existence, and it was involuntary. They were put in that position. Now, by this point, apparently in Roman history, most of these would have been the children of slaves. They would have been born into a family of slaves, but they nevertheless, it was an involuntary position. Peter does not outright condemn the institution of slavery here. Thomas Schreiner writes this. New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform cultures. And that's the end of that quote. But the New Testament writers do, they do, in fact, make an extraordinary step forward. And and we need to not miss it from our angle, from our vantage point. The step forward is that they address slaves directly. They talk to slaves. Now, you might say, well, that's no big deal, but in fact it is. We talked about the household codes and the structure of these household codes. Well, in that structure, you didn't talk. You didn't tell slaves how to behave. You told masters how to treat slaves, right? That's, there's, a, there's a big difference between speaking to slaves and telling masters what to do with their slaves. And some of what masters are told to do with uh, their slaves, we would think, okay, that's good, treat them fairly. But some of it is not. Some of it is ugly in terms of the way you were told to think of your slave. But in addressing slaves then, something radical has happened here. The New Testament is honoring personhood. It's honoring image-bearing and dignity and worth and honor. It is ascribing to a slave, this word that is often used in this uh, context, moral agency. Moral agency. When I speak to you and I say, this is how you should comport yourself in this particular circumstance, I'm assuming your moral agency, your capacity to do that, to think and to feel and to act in a way that is honoring to God. That is no small thing. 
It's important then for all of us. It wasn't good slavery, but it was real. And one of the ways that all of us can help to understand this and see this, Joel Green puts it this way. Slavery was a form of institutionalized marginality. Institutionalized marginality. In in other words, by definition, slaves weren't in the main part of uh, society. They weren't people you normally took into account with, uh, with your decisions that you would make and things like that. They were marginalized, institutionally marginalized, because that was the institution of slavery. Now, for Peter... What he's looking at is the whole idea of us being exiles and sojourners in this world. And so the idea of an exile or sojourner is that we are marginalized. We don't quite fit in with this world. We don't act the way this world works. We don't do the things that they do, think the way that they think, or hold the values necessarily that they hold. And so Peter allows us to think about servants because thinking about servants in their particular circumstance is a way to say, okay, if you're marginalized, which Christians are as strangers, exiles, sojourners in this world, then this is how you are to behave. All right, one last preliminary point then. The fact that there are spheres, and we've been talking about spheres, and situations in which we find ourselves does not mean necessarily that one cannot seek to grow and develop within that sphere or even to have an authoritative position in that particular place. So, for example, this is an easy one. Peter doesn't address children in his, but the other household codes from Paul, for example, address what children should do. Now, within the sphere of the family, it actually works out that children don't always remain children. At some point, children become adults, and at some point, children often, sometimes, become husbands and wives themselves. So their position within family structure is going to undergo transformation throughout the progress of their lives. Likewise, I'm not going to talk for a long time, but just hear these words from Paul with respect to slavery. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians uh, 7. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So there's a fundamental idea here that becoming a Christian doesn't mean everything is thrown away and you go to do whatever you want to do. Were you called, I'm continuing now, were you called as a bondservant, were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, flip it over, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, uh, called, there let him remain with God. So you see the two ideas there. One, you can be content wherein you were called, and if you have opportunity to move from slave to freed, avail yourself of it. Avail yourself of that opportunity, because even in your slavery, you have uh, been freed by Christ, and even if you are free, you are a slave of Christ. So Peter is addressing those circumstances here in which movement out of the circumstance or legal recourse and protection 
was non-existent or at least very limited. Sorry, I know that was a mouthful. Here's the idea. In each one of these things that Peter is addressing, whether he's talking about you're a citizen or a slave in the Roman Empire, or you're a servant and you've got a master who's over you, or you're talking about a household and you've got a wife and a husband within that household, in each one of those situations in the culture of that time, you don't have a lot of movement opportunities. It's, it's not easy. You can't just easily transition between or out of those worlds and get into some other world, some other situation. That's not our situation. That's not our reality. And in applying this passage, we're going to have to keep that in mind. We have different opportunities before us than existed at this particular time. But seeing the way Peter addresses people who are kind of locked into those things, I think then helps us to think about our own as well. All right, so there you go. Sorry, that's a lot. I know. I, I don't know how else to handle or to be able to get to the meat of this passage without having those things at least said so that then we can look at this in particular. Listen again. I'm just going to do the first couple verses here. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God for to this you have been called. All right, now the substance of it. Once again, we are presented with this instruction that is centered around the idea of being subject. That's the first thing that's said in each one of these sections. With respect to the government, we saw that that was done by honoring, by being subject, and by doing good. Okay? Honor is the main category. Be subject, do good. And the same exact structure exists here as well. Though honor is not mentioned in our passage, this is all under the category of honorable conduct. So, to say it very clearly, uh, then the idea that Peter has here is the way that you show honor in the slave-master relationship, honor, is by being subject and doing that which is good. That's your responsibility within this particular relationship that exists. Now, this teaching that Peter gives to us here is in no way unique uh, to this passage. And in fact, I'd like you to look with me in your bulletins. Turn to page 7 of your bulletins. I put some additional passages there. Uh, I want to read two of them. I want to start with the Titus, and then I'll read the Colossians passage uh, from your bulletin here. But just to show you how Paul addresses this same issue, Titus Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Next passage, the one up above it from Colossians 3. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. I think it would be helpful for us just for a few moments here to think about this subjection that we're being called to be subject 
in two categories. The first category would be general subjection. What's the general thing that we're called to when we're called to be subject to masters? The second category is what does be subject mean when you're suffering unjustly? When you're suffering for something that has been done by you good and yet you find yourself suffering for it. Remember that in both of these cases, Peter is in one sense positively telling us what to do, but he's also addressing temptations that we've talked about here along the way. Christians are going to face temptations, right? To declare personal freedom, to say, I've been freed in Christ, I don't have to listen to anybody, I don't have to take into account what you say about something, I can do whatever I'd like to do. To become passive in waiting for the inheritance to come from the Lord. To demand immediate justice, Christians have that temptation as well. To say, listen, the Lord is good and the Lord is just and I am the Lord's and I want justice and I want to have it right now. And we're also tempted to grumble and we're tempted to complain. So into this, Peter speaks then, and I want to be clear about this idea of the general or the normal subjection. What what is being asked of us here or commanded to us with respect to normal situations? I'd like to combine my response to that with the two passages that I just read for us. And I think, and you'll recognize these as soon as I give them, I think we can come up with three very clear, very solid principles that are articulated by the Word of God with respect to this, if you will, slave-master or worker-boss relationship that's being described. We practice an honorable subjection in the first place by obeying. Obey. Okay, that's Colossians 3.22. Bond servants, obey. That's what we are to do. We are, as workers, to do what we have been told to do and not do what we've been forbidden from doing. Okay? Do what you are told to do. That's the first way we practice subjection. The second way is by working hard and working well. And Colossians 3.23 is the great verse on that. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Titus says, do it in a way that is well-pleasing that is out there. So you work hard and you work well. You In the first place, obey, and then you work hard and you work well. Number three is you have a good attitude while you're doing it. This is simple stuff. You have a good attitude, Peter says, with all respect. Colossians says, with sincerity of heart. Titus says, not in an argumentative way. And Timothy, which is on the front of your bulletin, I'm not going to turn to it right now, from 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, on the front of your bulletin, says, treat your masters as those who are worthy of all honor. Worthy of all honor, treat them that way, which is in a sense to say have a good attitude in heart and in speech. In the fear of the Lord, be respectful to your boss. This is our ethic. And with the blessing of God, it promotes prosperity, well-being, and even success. And that should be a thing that characterizes us as Christians. If I walked into your workplace it might be that your boss would say, that person in particular is this kind of worker because that's the ethic that belongs to us. That's the command that belongs to us. Now, this is the instruction about it. If you want to hear what it looks like in practice in a person, we've already heard it. You've heard it in the life of Joseph, who, as a slave, he was bought by Potiphar. 
The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Now, this is Joseph, a little bit of a unique situation and certainly a unique person in the history of God's people. But that, that description should characterize us in our work situations or, if we were a slave, in our relationship with our master. That we should have this kind of trust and this kind of success with the blessing of the Lord. However, this is a bent and crooked world. And if you haven't noticed, it doesn't always work like that. It's a bent and crooked world. Here's what Ecclesiastes says. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. If you are not aware of this, you need to wake up, Christian, because what we read right there in Joseph is really good, but you know what? The next section begins with Potiphar's wife, and it gets really complicated right out of the chute, right Right as you get going, right as you think everything's going well, the race is not always to the fast. And so Peter says, all right, the next thing we need to address is what does subjection look like when you are experiencing injustice? That's the question. That's the question that slaves face in particular. Now, before we can give Peter's answer, we have to understand this, that when Peter has that question, staring him in the face, contemplating, what do I say to slaves who are in this situation? Peter cannot even think of the answer to that question without having Christ, without having the cross of Jesus Christ right in front of him in terms of his heart and in terms of his mind. Peter heard Jesus. Peter heard Jesus say these words, page 7, if you want to follow along, you don't have to. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Because even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Peter heard that instruction. And more than that, or in addition to that, Peter watched Jesus live it. That's the section we're going to talk about next week. Peter watched Jesus endure the injustice of the world and not revile in return and not strike back in return. And so Peter hears this question, all right, slave, situation, master, practicing this injustice upon this person, what are they to do when this person has in fact done good, done good being defined as what we said is the ethic above. Here's what Peter says. Three things. They're both, all three of these things are repeated in 19 and in 20. You should, when you're faced with this injustice as a slave, you should endure. Endure it. And it's said twice in each one, of, in 19 and in 20. One endures sorrows. Endure it. 
for this is a gracious thing. Endurance is not produced on sunny 75 degree days. Endurance is produced when it's bitter cold or when it's blistering hot. Endurance isn't produced on a beach. Endurance is produced in a mortar and pestle where we are crushed and where we are ground down in this world. That's where endurance is produced. Grinding is required for endurance. And we should endure because endurance is godlike. It is Christ-like. Peter, in 2 Peter, in the second letter, will say to us, the Lord is patient. Love is patient. Love bears. Love endures. Endure, Peter says. Second, we should be mindful of God. We should be conscious of God. Verse 19. Be mindful of God. Be conscious of God. Let your conscience be reflective of God himself. And then in verse 20, in the sight of God, we must live quorum deo before the face of God, before the presence of God. Because the first reaction that at least I have to mistreatment, at least for me, at least for my flesh, is frankly to yell and to scream, and I want to hit. I want to hit back. If you treat me with injustice and you're my master, my boss, I want with every fiber of my being to hit back. That's what the flesh wants. But what we must do is I must remember Jesus Christ. I can't be governed by the flesh. I have to be governed by Jesus Christ, by his example, by his life, by his instruction, by God's sovereignty, by God's promises, by God's justice, by God's mercy, those things have to rule. And in order for them to rule in that moment and in reflection on that moment, I have to be conscious of God. I have to think it through. I have to own it. I have to work that through into my life and let it saturate my being. Third, We've got to recalibrate our vision and see this as a gracious thing. A gracious thing. Peter is talking about suffering injustice, and he uses this phrase twice. 19, for this is a gracious thing. 20, closes with this. If you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is a gracious thing. You could translate it as this is grace. I, I like the translation that would go, uh, and this is only mine, this is a grace thing. This is a grace thing that is before us here, and there are a range of ways we could understand that phrase, this is a grace thing. This is a gracious thing because this kind of reaction to injustice looks upside down. It doesn't look right. What what seems to look right is in the face of injustice, you correct the injustice and you do that which overturns the injustice. That's the thing that goes into your mind. Grace, though, turns things upside down and instead of giving back what you just gave, it turns it upside down and says, I'm going to give you something instead of what you deserve. And so... To suffer in this way is to be gracious. It is a grace thing because it doesn't add up. It's a grace thing, or it's a gracious thing, not only because you are exercising grace, which you would be doing, 
but you are being given grace even as you were exercising the grace in this particular situation, and grace is being multiplied through you. When you treat people this way, when you don't give them what they deserve, but you give them grace instead, you are multiplying grace. Or we could say it this way, God is multiplying grace through you unto the people who are around you. And that's where Peter began with the apostolic reading in this letter. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he's giving you something here that is a gracious thing. Grace and peace be multiplied through you, to you, in you, as you endure unjust suffering. This is a gracious thing. God is forgiving you. God will reward you, if not in this life, in the life that is to come. So what are you supposed to do in the face of unjust treatment? Uh, suffering for doing that which is good. You are to endure. You are to be mindful of God. You are to keep in mind that this is a gracious thing. And if you do all that and you end up in jail, as you might, as you might, two things. Lament. That's not in the Genesis story. That you've got to bring Psalms into this. Lament. And then you do this. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison now. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. In other words, grace was multiplied, not just as Joseph served Potiphar, but even when Joseph ended up in jail because of the injustice of Potiphar's wife, God used that to multiply grace, not only in the prison, which is obvious here, but we know what comes after that. He multiplied grace unto the provision that then Joseph would give for his own family, for his own people, and then for all of the Egyptians as well in the time of famine. He had to get to that place, right? God had to take him there in order to get him where he was sending him, which was going to be into Pharaoh's court. So honorable conduct is to be subject in general and when suffering injustice. Why? Verse 21, for to this you have been called. You've been called to it. Suffering injustice is not an accident. It's not not just a side effect. It's not merely inevitable. Suffering injustice Injustice for doing good is a calling. It's a vocation for the people of God. Now, a few verses back, the verse we love when we read it. God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's a great calling like that calling. In conclusion of the book, we're going to read that the God of all grace has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. That's great. Called out of darkness and in a marvelous light. Called into the glory of God through Christ in the middle. In the middle, the calling is to the Via Dolorosa. To the way of the cross. To the way of suffering. To the way that is the way of grief. But why? Why this path? Why is that the way. Why would you have us walk that particular road? Why would my 
Edmund Clowney, one of my favorite writers, favorite theologians, called this passage, I was reading his commentary, and I was stunned when he called this situation in which we would suffer injustice for doing good the golden opportunity. It's the golden opportunity when you suffer injustice for having done what is good. I read that and I thought, Edmund, Edmund, why would you use that phraseology? It's the golden opportunity. Because in the first place, it transforms us. It's going to make us more like Jesus. Through much tribulation, we have to enter the kingdom of God. It's going to make us like Jesus. Secondly, it's the golden opportunity because when you endure, you will receive grace. You will receive credit. You will receive reward on the last day when everything is put right. Jesus said, your reward will be great. Do you believe it? Because if you believe it, you can endure. And if you don't believe it, then you're going to have to fix everything now. You're going to have to do it now because you don't believe that you're going to get something in the future. But if you believe it, then suffering injustice is an investment opportunity in the bank of heaven. That's what it is. Stick the money in that bank and suffer the injustice. And three, we were called to this for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the progress of the gospel in this world, so that the name of God, and this is from the Timothy passage on the front, so that the name of God may not be reviled, from the Titus passage to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And we know that this Timothy passage is set here to stop up the mouths of the adversaries of those who would speak against our Lord. When you suffer injustice for doing good, and when you endure it, being mindful of God, you are wearing... You are exemplifying, you are inhabiting, living out the life of Christ before the world. That's what's happening when you do this. When you suffer injustice for doing good, it's Christ being manifest through you to the world. They haven't seen Christ. They haven't seen what Christ did. That's what Christ did. He suffered the just for the unjust. He suffered. And now, Peter says, for the same reason, you suffer it. To proclaim this gospel, this saving gospel of suffering, to the world that is in desperate need of it. That is the golden opportunity. This is the victory of our faith. The victory of our faith is not when you... you Don't have any suffering or injustice in your life. The victory of our faith is when you are suffering injustice for the sake of having done what is good and you endure it. That's the victory of our faith in this world. That's the kind of thing that God ultimately glorifies and that God ultimately uses. Now, wrapping it up, four more sentences in this. Surely this is going to look different for us than it would have we been a slave in the Roman Empire. I don't think, I know, that this passage doesn't call you to stay in your workplace if your boss beats you, okay? Now, it may have, 
in some culture, at some time. It may have in this particular situation, which is right here. But there is recourse in our culture. There is movement. There is change that is possible within our culture. So we can't make a one-to-one there. It doesn't matter what my boss does to me. I, I just have to take it. That's not quite it. But whom among us hasn't suffered injustice at work? Is there anybody here who can say, hey, my, my work's the greatest place ever, and I've never suffered anything that's really hard within the context of work? Of course you've suffered injustice. And while I can't begin to consider all the permutations that may exist in our world that we'd have to apply, those are the kind of things we live through. That's the kind of things that we talk about with one another. Say, hey, help me think through this. I'm enduring this situation. What do you think I should do? To talk to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because what we can say from this passage is that that's part of the will of God. That's what we can say clearly. This is part of the will of God. It is part of the call of God for the people of God. May the Lord then give us wisdom day by day in our work situations to be able to apply this correctly for ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would indeed help us with that. We want to honor you, and so we pray that you would help us to honor you. Jesus, thank you for the teaching that you gave to us. Thank you for your life that you gave for us, just for the unjust. We, in that case, in that equation, being the unjust, who have experienced now your love, your mercy, your care for us that was exemplified in your suffering. Thank you that we've been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. In your name we pray. Amen.